Now that's submission. Uh, turn with me, please, to the Old Testament, uh, to the Psalms. And I'd like to read from Psalm 72. That's in the middle. Uh, Psalm 72, and uh, I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Psalm 72, verses 1 through 14. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness to the king's son. May he judge thy people with righteousness and thine afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Let them fear thee while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts and let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. The afflicted also in him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy. And the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence. And their blood will be precious in his sight. May the Lord bless his word. Let's bow together. Lord, we have a great promise spread before us in your word that you will vindicate the cause of the needy and the poor and the oppressed. Show us now how, day by day, in the broken world in which we live, you fulfill this promise and how you use your church to do it. Thank you, Father, for the gifts you sprinkle throughout your body, for the gifts of music which lift our hearts and cause us to rejoice, sometimes in the midst of pain and sorrow. Thank you for the way you've shared those gifts with us tonight and the gifts you give your people and the people you give to us. We praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, regarding this, <laughs> at least I have a belly button to save. <laughs> that little fellow didn't have any. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the last few nights we have been talking about the kingdom of God and uh, for those of, I'm doing this for the benefit of those of you who sort of pop in and out uh, <laughs> stay with us Roger and <laughs> the, uh, uh, the first night we sort of we're sort of focusing <laughs> not time. <laughs> uh, just get it out of your system. It's all right. I'll just sit here and pick my teeth or something. Well, 
the uh, my wife can tell you I have an aversion to cameras. I just <laughs> I got all the way through uh, high school and college without ever once having my picture appear in any annual whatsoever. <laughs> then I went to seminary and that ruined my record. Uh, the uh, but we've been sort of talking about the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Luke, and we've uh, seen how that kingdom is kind of central to it all. Uh, we've focused on the central message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom is the message of Jesus the King. And uh, then we've been talking each night about the special kinds of groups of people that uh, Luke particularly is interested in in his Gospel. Now, I guess we don't have the time to do this, but you've just sort of got to trust me that when you compare Luke's Gospel to Matthew and Mark, for example, uh, you're going to find a very different kind of emphasis. Uh, you're going to find, for example, that uh, as we noticed uh, that uh, second night out, that Luke's particular emphasis on the lost, you don't find that quite as strong in Matthew or in Mark. And uh, as we noticed last night, uh, even Luke's emphasis on children is something kind of special to him. You're not going to find that quite as strong in Matthew or Mark as it is in Luke. And uh, tonight we're going to draw on another great theme of the Gospel of Luke, and that is on uh, the kingdom of God and its relationship to the poor. And uh, that, I think, is a theme that's very important in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I realize this is a very depressing topic, and I wish there were some way to keep it from being depressing. Uh, the, particularly when we're sitting here looking at all this glory, and especially after the meal tonight, <laughs> tends to make you feel very guilty. You know, you sit there thinking about that great steak, you know, and all those starving people all over the world. Well, that's all right. Feel a little guilty. It's good for you. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I don't think really in uh, this, this topic uh, is a very deep concern to me and to our family. And it's a concern that's built up over the years. Uh, I think most of it has come uh, out of our experience in Korea. Uh, you can't work, uh, it seems to me, in a third world country for any length of time without coming face to face with just the starkness and the awfulness of poverty. And not the kind of poverty that's, fan you know, the kind of fancy titles that fit into a presidential uh, uh, listing that you get once a year from the White House in Washington. Uh, that's nice, neat, uh, a tablecloth, clean kind of poverty. Uh, we're talking about the poverty that sweeps up children in the streets uh, every morning in Calcutta. Uh, maybe uh, some of you have seen on public television the documentary of uh, Mother Teresa called Something Beautiful for God. Uh, and you've seen uh, visually uh, the work that Mother Teresa does collecting the dead, uh, the dying on the streets of Calcutta. Uh, someday go to Bombay. And, uh, or Delhi, and you come out of it, as I took students a few years ago, and you, uh, you've been five weeks in the mountains of the Himalayas doing evangelistic work, you're just coming back home, and you're on a sort of an R&R, a rest time in Delhi, and uh, uh, the gang of students and you have gone to see a movie. Now for four weeks you've been faced with abject poverty in India. And so you go to see a movie, it'll give you a different reflection on life in India. Now you can't understand a word of the movie, but you sit there in the balcony, uh, this group of American students, for four or five weeks you've been living in mud huts made out of things I won't describe to you now, 
And, uh, the, uh, and then suddenly this movie comes on the screen, and it's all about life in India. <laughs> what India it is, you're not too sure anymore. Starts out, there's this great big scene, there's this lovely winding staircase, comes down, looks like it's, it's a house, uh, it's the shack behind the cathedral, the glass cathedral in, <laughs> in, in Garden Grove, you know. And here comes this Indian girl, this lovely flowing robe, just sort of dancing down the staircase, you know. You're waiting for an Indian friend of stair to reach up and grab her, you know. And every, all the students are just sitting there, literally, our mouths are wide open. <laughs> and finally, one of the students says, what country is this? <laughs> the, uh, but what you're hit by in the film, then really what film escapism means comes to you. Uh, when you watch that film, just so totally out of the life that you've been a part of for four or five weeks, and you get out of the movie theater... You're walking five blocks away to go to the Y, where you're going to be staying for the night. It's about nine o'clock at night. You're about half a block from the movie theater. Uh, as you walk down the uh, walk down the side street towards the YMCA, uh, you see a mother, uh, very thin, emaciated, thin little uh, sari around her, and she's got a baby, a little tiny baby. She's wrapping the sari around the baby, baby, and then you watch her. She sits down in the as she lays down in the corner of one of the buildings in the gutter of the street to sleep for the night. And in the four blocks you walk from the movie theater, seeing that glorified version of life in India, and you get to the YMCA, you see four or five people like that, making uh, their beds uh, in the gutters of Delhi to sleep. And uh, that's poverty. Uh, this illustration has been used before, but I think it's still fairly graphic. Suppose you could compress all the population of the world uh, into a town of 1,000 people. Uh, in this town, uh, 330 people would be rich, 670 would be poor. There would be no middle class in this village, because the middle class in the world population is almost negligible. 69, 69 of the 1,000 people in that village would be from North America. Uh, these 69 people would control half of the total income of the village. 69 out of the 1,000 people in the village would eat one-seventh of the food that was available in the village. Those 69 people out of 1,000 would own half of the telephones in the village. They would have 10 times as many doctors as the rest of the population of the village, 15 times as many nurses to call on, 12 times as many hospital beds, 25 times as many newspapers as anyone else, five times as many books. And that's what it means to be poor in the world. Uh, New York City, with a population of 8 million, has an annual budget about the size of the Republic of India, with a population of 600 million. The, uh, and that's what it means to be poor. It's real, uh, it's there, and it's very, very painful. Uh, I remember after all these years, and it's been 15 years, but I remember very vividly being entertained in the home of a deacon in a little rural uh, village in Korea. This deacon was a watchmaker. He didn't have much money, but he worked to make watches, and then he did evangelistic work for his church, uh, church planning. Uh, he had to sit, sit down and... Uh, uh, he was very poor. He said, just wait a minute, I've got to serve you. So he went outside to get a bowl of soup for us. He knew he was going to buy the soup because he didn't have the money and there wasn't soup in the house. 
We tried to stop them, but you don't do that in Korean society because you have to receive hospitality as well as to give it. So he went out to get the bowl of soup, and he came back with two great big bowls of soup for my missionary associate of uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church and myself, and we sat there with the bowls in front of us and said, of course, you'll have to share it with us. And uh, then we sat and talked, uh, the watchmaker and his wife and my friend and I. Uh, a little bit later, we heard a cry, and uh, behind us in one of the side rooms, a blanket stirred. And uh, the uh, deacon uh, walked over into the little side room to check the blanket, then he came back, and we heard the cry again. We got a little suspicious. Is there anything the matter with your son, we asked. Uh, no, he's all right, the deacon said. Uh, uh, we, uh, uh, can we pray for him? And the deacon said, thank you, please pray for him. So he went to the little side room. We put the bowls of soup aside and went to the little side room. And uh, uh, when we, we said we'd like to put our hands on the little baby and pray for him, we took the blanket off the baby. Sometimes this is a good way to see what the trouble is. Uh, and we saw a little baby, about a year old, uh, looked as if it was 40 years of age, uh, heavy, sallowed uh, face, lines, creases, just a little baby, a year old. Uh, legs like pencil sticks, uh, the uh, uh, flesh just hanging on the pencils, and a swollen belly. The baby was dying of malnutrition. Would we pray for the baby? We sat there with our two bowls of soup, uh, enjoying fellowship from a family who couldn't give it, uh, praying over a baby that was dying of malnutrition. And that's what poverty is all about. <coughs> now, is Jesus concerned about poverty? Does God really care about poverty? And I think the Bible answers that question very loudly and very clearly. I'm afraid, however, it has struck me that often we don't see these passages in the Bible. I didn't see them until, first of all, I saw what poverty was really all about. And that made me look at the Bible again in a new and fresh way, in a way that I've never done before. The, uh, now, uh, I've run across passages, we all have, in the Old Testament about the poor. You've run across, for example, passages in the, uh, uh, maybe you've come across some very beautiful passages in the laws of Moses uh, that deal with the poor. For example, you know that uh, uh, when uh, uh, the Israelites were told to harvest their fields, they were always told to leave the edges of their field, according to the laws of Moses. And the point was that uh, uh, they were to harvest or cut down all the field except the edges, and the edges were to be left for the widows and the orphans, so that uh, the widows and the orphans could then go out into the field and pick what was left. They were the gleaners. And some of you may remember the whole central thrust or message, uh, the, the emphasis of the book of Ruth is built out of that practice. Uh, there was Ruth, the widow, uh, her mother-in-law Naomi, also a widow, and uh, they were enabled to go out into the fields of Boaz and uh, reap the fields because they were dirt poor. Uh, they were widows, and therefore they were poor. Uh, there were also other, other uh, regulations. For example, the Old Testament, uh, uh, the Lord, out of his concern for the poor, says, uh, suppose you have a day laborer, uh, a man who's dirt poor and works day by day. You are not, says, uh, I think, the book of Exodus, uh, you are not to pay that man wages by the week, but rather, says the law of God, you're to pay him day by day wages. So when the day is over, he gets his wages. Why? Because he may not last another day. Uh, day by day wages mean very, very much to somebody who's that poor. Uh, you can't take away the cloak of a poor man uh, for collateral, for a loan, uh, because that cloak is all he's got uh, to keep him from the cold night air. 
And the Lord says, if you take away his coat, I'm going to remember that and I'll hold that against you. A great many passages like that in the Old Testament, very powerful ones. Some Bible scholars have even argued, and uh, this is one I'm doing homework on right now, that the Old Testament tithe uh, has its specific uh, central focus on taking care of the poor, not taking care of the needs of the church, but taking care of the needs of the poor. And uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, biblical study going on about that very point right now. The uh, Levites, after all, you remember, were unemployed. Uh, and obviously that means they must have been poor folks. So the uh, payment of the tithe to the Levites uh, may very well have been, in effect, a payment of the tithe to the poor. Now, the Lord knew that in the growth of human society, things were going to start getting mixed up and moving upside down and backwards. Uh, the Lord... Uh, could see uh, the changes uh, and knew of what would happen as the Israelites moved uh, from a rural background into the city and began to feel the pressures of the city life. And that's the very reason the Lord built all these regulations. But the Lord, in all of these regulations, built as well a sort of a safety valve. The Lord created a piece of legislation marvelous uh, by comparison with all of the other legal systems of the ancient Near East and that was the legal system known as the Jubilee Year. Uh, now we all know what the Sabbath day was. And some of us may even know what the Sabbath year was. Uh, there was this sort of cycle of sevens by sevens by sevens. First came the Sabbath day. Uh, uh, a day of social legislation, by the way, it seems to me. One of the things that we've neglected in the OPC with our very strong emphasis on the Sabbath is the importance of seeing the Sabbath as a piece of social legislation. God enacted the Sabbath day to remind the world that man was not built to work himself to death. Uh, the Sabbath day was God's piece of social legislation to say to the world, you cannot kill your fellow men by overwork. The, uh, and then to remind uh, the Lord of the significance of that, he created a whole cycle of Sabbaths. He created a year, one year out of every seven, in which uh, the children of Israel were to stop all of their work in which not even the animals were to work, in which they were not to plant their fields, uh, and they were to say, in effect, to the whole world, we are depending on God to take care of us. Not only for this year, but for the year after, too, because uh, the year after you don't plant a field can be just as serious as the one when you don't. <laughs> the, uh, and all of these things were intended to say to the world, God is concerned, and we're going to learn to lean on the Lord for our financial support and help. Now, in that Sabbath year, uh, the poor people, those who had no help, could go out into the fields and help themselves to whatever grew. It was sort of a piece of social, a social security legislation in which God took care of the poor for a whole year by making all the nation of Israel poor and make, by making them all learn to depend on, excuse me, on him. Now, uh, there was even a Sabbath year of the Sabbath years, as we know. And uh, it came every 50 years, 7 times 7 plus 1. And that was called the Jubilee Year. Uh, at the beginning of that year, on the Day of Atonement, significant, isn't it? The Lord, a special trumpet was dragged out of the closet, uh, the shofar trumpet, uh, different from all the other kinds of trumpets. And that trumpet was blown to announce throughout the land uh, the Jubilee of God. And uh, when that trumpet was blown, uh, the, uh, the Israelites were to proclaim liberty to the land. And uh, that liberty really meant something. On the Jubilee year, according to the legislation, 
if for some reason or other you had to sell yourselves into debt, on the Jubilee year you were automatically released from the debt. You're automatically freed, and not just sort of freed and said thank you and let go, but according to the Jubilee legislation, you were given a pretty sizable bank account uh, in the whole process. Uh, uh, it wasn't just pat you on the head and say thank you uh, for the last 48 years. You were given a pretty considerable grubstake, according to the legislation of God. The, uh, not only that, uh, if for some reason or other you had to sell your land during the previous 50 years, then again, according to the Jubilee legislation, that land was automatically to be returned to you. Because you were the trustee of that land, no one else, the land belonged to Jehovah and you were its, uh, its caretaker. So give the land back to the caretakers. Uh, uh, there was, it seems to me in the Old Testament, no particular concept of private property or private ownership of property. Jehovah owned the property and we took care of it for Jehovah. Just as Adam took care of the garden, it belonged to Jehovah. Now, while all of these things were designed, you see, to correct the imbalance in the social system when things happened. Uh, and uh, all of the social system was geared, lock, stock, and barrel, for taking care of the poor. The idea was, was that if poverty began to grow to insurmountable heights, that 50th year came, and when it came, God himself, by his own hand, and by the, uh, through the instrumentality of his people, would begin to uh, rectify that uh, broken and imbalanced society. It was built right into the structure. Only one small problem. Nobody paid any attention to it. The, uh, there is no, uh, as far as I can see, no clear indication anywhere in the Old Testament that the Jubilee year was ever kept. Not even once. And uh, in fact, we're told at the very end of uh, Second Chronicles that it might very well be this lack of keeping the Jubilee year that sent the children of Israel into exile. In uh, Second Chronicles chapter 36 and uh, uh, verses 20 and 21, we're told uh, that the children of Israel are sent away into Babylon to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were completed. Remember the children, the two tribes were sent into exile for 70 years. The Lord, as it were, saying, all right, you have not been keeping my Sabbath year cycle. I will force you to keep it. You have missed 70 Sabbath years. Now you're going to make up for each and every one. I'm going to put them all together. And for 70 years, you won't touch this land that belongs to you. And for 70 years, you're going to learn what it means to depend totally and completely on me. And for 70 years, I'm going to put your neck under the noose uh, as an exile. Uh, you're going to learn what it means to be oppressed once more. You're going to learn once more what it means to be totally without anything in your hands. I'm going to teach you that. And away they go to Babylon to learn their lesson. Uh, pretty dismal days. This is why, for example, when the Old Testament ends, uh, you remember it ends with all of these strong messages of the prophets. And uh, there they are, Isaiah, Amos, uh, you've read them time and again. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, as you read those prophets, they're not judging the people of God, uh, condemning them uh, because they've missed Wednesday night prayer meeting. Uh, they're not condemning them because of, uh, of their uh, lack of faith in Jehovah. The problem was they had too much lack of, they had too much faith in Jehovah. 
They had faith in Jehovah, but it was uh, what was missing in that faith in Jehovah that bothered the prophets. And what was missing? They didn't love the poor. And so Amos talks about the children of Israel who sell the poor for a pair of shoes and the needy for a loaf of bread. And uh, God's judgment comes on the children of Israel, uh, not because they're not willing to offer up sacrifices, but because the hands that offer up sacrifices are covered with blood. So Isaiah chapter 1 says, Cease to do evil, learn to do good, relieve the oppressed, care for the widow, uh, do justice. A very interesting kind of language. That's how the Old Testament ends. Kind of bleak, pretty desolate. But certainly a clear indication that God is desperately concerned about the poor. The psalmist sang about it. We read Psalm 72. God will vindicate the afflicted. God will take care of the needy. God will save the poor and the oppressed. The whole psalm is filled with that kind of language. Now, when's God going to do that? Uh, you'll notice, as we read Psalm 72, uh, that that psalm is uh, sort of future-type language. Uh, we read about, uh, uh, the, we, here's the psalmist, and he calls out, May God judge thy people with righteousness, thine afflicted with justice. Uh, usually we tend, I think, in the new, through reading our New Testament, to identify the term righteousness as something that Jesus does for us. And it's something that we think of in terms of our life of piety. It's something Jesus has done at Calvary or up in heaven somewhere, and God's put it on our, on our mark someplace. May I suggest to you that uh, all of that is perfectly biblical and true, but don't reduce righteousness to just sort of moralisms. Uh, don't reduce uh, righteousness to just personal piety before God, which Jesus puts on our account. Righteousness is another biblical word for justice. Notice the parallelism here in verse 2. May he judge thy people with righteousness and thine afflicted with justice. Justice and righteousness sort of interchanged. Notice also it uses the phrase here, thy people, God's people. Why, that's remnant language, isn't it? He's talking about uh, the elect, the chosen children of the Lord. Notice also what he calls them. He calls them the afflicted. Uh, in fact, throughout this psalm, when the psalmist discusses who the people of God are, he characterizes the people of God as the poor, as the broken, as the afflicted. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people. May he save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. Uh, the people of God are those who are oppressed those who are in desperate need, uh, those who are being crushed. Uh, verse 12, he will deliver the needy uh, when he cries for help. The afflicted also, and him who has no helper, he will have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. Now all of these terms are being used by the psalmist as terms, one after another, to describe the people of God. It is the people of God who are called the poor. It's the people of God who are called the needy, uh, the people of God uh, upon whom the Lord is going to have compassion. Uh, the, the blood of the people of God is precious in the sight of the Lord. He's going to vindicate. He's going to stand for the poor whose blood is now being spilt uh, upon the earth. And once more, uh, uh, the uh, blood of the people of God will cry out from uh, the earth and the Lord will say, uh, where is Abel thy brother? Now, uh, this is the, la the language of the psalm. When's all this going to happen? When will the Lord come to vindicate uh, the poor and the needy and the broken? 
And uh, the psalmist gives us, uh, the, uh, uh, the prophets give us that answer as well. Uh, they talk about somebody who's coming. And uh, they talk about this person who's coming as uh, the Prince of Peace. And uh, they talk about this one who's coming as the Wonderful Counselor. And they say that when this Wonderful Counselor and this Prince of Peace comes, he's going to come with judgment in his hand. Uh, and he's going to come and he's going to judge the world, Isaiah 9, verse 7, with justice and righteousness. And he will establish justice and he will uphold it. From then on and forevermore, the Lord's really going to do this. Isaiah chapter 11 describes this coming one. It says that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Isaiah 11, verses 2 and following. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now listen to how this wisdom and understanding is going to be expressed by that one on whom the Spirit comes. With righteousness, he will not judge by what his eyes see. He will not make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Righteousness, justice, as it were, will be the belt about his loins. And he'll bring peace. Wolves lying down with lambs. And the Messiah will come and do all of that for the people of God. When will he do it, say the prophets? And, of course, the great message of the prophets is that the Messiah will come, the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him, and he's going to do that in the Jubilee year. There is a new, glorious Jubilee year that really is coming. Only this time it's not going to be dependent on uh, the plans of Israel because they've never really worked at it. This time the Lord himself will initiate the Jubilee year. This time the Lord himself will blow the trumpet. And this time the Lord will send the Savior, the Redeemer, uh, the, the kinsman. And this time the kinsman will come to stand on behalf of the poor and the widows and the orphans. And this time the kinsman will come to save his people and uh, to redeem the poor and the needy and the broken. And the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. And uh, the great new year of the Lord will start. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and following. The Messiah speaks. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the afflicted. To, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It's coming, and the Messiah is going to bring it. He's going to bring good news to the poor. He's going to break the uh, chains of the prisoners. He's going to bind up the wounds uh, of those who are broken and oppressed. Uh, he's going to crush the oppressor, and he's going to lift up the cause of justice uh, over all the earth. When's it going to happen? Over 1,900 years ago, in a synagogue uh, on the shores of the Sea of Capernaum, in the city of Nazareth, a man stands up, an itinerant rabbi, he walks uh, to the front of the assembly. The scroll of Isaiah is given to him. He reads from this very passage that we've read uh, this evening. And then he sits down. In those days it was customary to sit, as he said the other night. And uh, he preaches. He closes the book. 
and these are, and everybody's watching him, and he says, Luke 4, verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, and he's talking about this promise we've just shared with you. And he doesn't say tomorrow, and he doesn't say in the millennium, and he doesn't say even beyond the millennium. He says today, right here, right now. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. It really honestly has. Not it will be, not I think it's going to be, not it's in the process of happening. It has been fulfilled. You have heard it. Uh, your, your ears have caught uh, the message that this prophecy has been fulfilled. How? Look at the one who speaks it. Jesus. Uh, the great day of Jubilee, uh, God's great word of salvation and hope for the poor is here and now because Jesus has come. Jesus has come to save the poor. Jesus has come not simply to preach good news, and this is very interesting in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has come to preach good news to the poor. Now, uh, that's a startling thing, but very, very true. Later on, John is in prison. I think we mentioned this a couple of nights ago. Struggling with uh, uh, this one who has come, uh, claiming to be the Messiah, struggling with uh, what that uh, message of the Messiah is, and asking uh, uh, Jesus as he languishes in prison, are you really the one that should come? And what does Jesus answer John? He says to John, go, Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 22, Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And the point Jesus is making to John the Baptist is, yes, I'm the Messiah. And all these great prophecies of the word of the Lord are being fulfilled in me. How do you know that? Look what I'm doing. The poor, mind you, hear the good news. And the sick and the broken and the lame and the orphans and the dead, are, uh, their lives are being rearranged by God himself. Uh, all these categories in this passage, uh, blind, lame, lepers, deaf, dead, uh, these are all categories, sort of subdivisions, as far as I can read them, of the poor. Remember when you, in the first century, in the New Testament period, you know, you didn't have social security, uh, you didn't have systems that took care of people, families took care of people. Uh, you had extended families, and the extended family took care of human needs. But the extended family didn't take care of the blind. They sat by the roadside begging like Bartimaeus. Uh, they had handicaps, and they weren't just handicaps. Uh, they, uh, they meant the end of the road. They were dead-end streets. Uh, what did you do if you're blind? Uh, you know, you couldn't rely on, uh, on somebody to help get you a job. Uh, you had nothing to do except get out to the side of the road and beg for what you could find. The, uh, if you're a widow, what was there? Nothing. Remember how Jesus uh, attacks the Pharisees because they devour widows' houses? The uh, widows were alone, and they were really, really alone. How many times we mentioned last night in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus draws attention when he heals, when he raises the dead, that this is the only son or the only daughter. 
if you had an only son dead in a, in a coffin, you had nothing. Uh, all of the uh, sources of help in your life was now, were now gone. Uh, you're all alone, just sort of standing up there against the world, against uh, the withering, uh, uh, money-hungry vision of the Pharisees, eager to grab, what, uh, grab up what they could find. You were a widow, and to be a widow in the New Testament was to be nothing. Uh, like that woman in the parable, all she could do was keep begging that judge to give her what was her due, and all she could expect was nothing in return, because she was a widow. She had no kinsman, nobody to stand by her. Uh, nobody to defend her before others, nobody to stand in her place, uh, no kinsman. Uh, the word, trans that word kinsman, translated in the New Testament, comes out as redeemer, by the way. The, uh, and that's what it was like. And now along comes Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm the kinsman of the poor. I stand on behalf of the poor. I stand on behalf of the widows. I stand on behalf of the broken of the world. I stand on behalf of the blind and the lame and the lepers, and uh, I'm here to change the world. And he does it. Uh, he does it through his mighty miracles. You know, those miracles weren't, uh, weren't done by the Lord, I think, just to sort of give us object lessons in how big God did things or provide us with great apologetic uh, uh, instruments by which we could argue with uh, the local professors on the campuses. Those miracles were demonstrations ahead of time of the Jubilee year that was coming. Uh, in the final Jubilee day, God was go is going to remove all sickness and death and evil, isn't he? God is going to take all tears away from their eyes. Okay, along comes Jesus and he starts the process right now. He takes uh, away blindness and he, ta he touches lepers and they're clean. Uh, he... Uh, touches uh, the, the ears of the, of the deaf, and suddenly they hear again. Uh, it's just as if they've come into a brand new world. And of course, that's exactly what they've done. The whole point of all this is that Jesus has come to begin the new world, right here and right now. And they're going to get a little taste ahead of time, sort of previews of coming attractions, of everything that awaits them when Jesus comes again uh, in that glorious new day. Uh, some of us in our families have got problems, uh, really, really serious, agonizing health problems. We're here as we pray for husbands that are, uh, that are sick, maybe MS. Or we're here uh, carrying with us uh, some of the burdens of uh, physical ill health. Uh, some of you know and have prayed for me over the years, and I appreciate that. You know I have something called retinitis pigmentosa, which is a form of... Uh, eye disease and basically means blindness within maybe three, four, five years. Uh, and others have got other things, uh, uh, nerves, uh, problems, and we carry them all with us all day long. Uh, reminders that we're still chained uh, to uh, that old world of sin. But Jesus has come. And Jesus uh, touches those raw nerves and that pain, and he heals all of that, and he says, look, uh, there's a great new day coming. And all the wrongs are one day going to be righted. And I know you have pain now. And I know you can't see. And I know you struggle uh, in that chair. And I know there's uh, agony at night and you can't sleep. But look, uh, there are new changes coming. And uh, how do I know all this? Because uh, I was by the Sea of Galilee and I told it to stop. How do I know all this? Uh, because I put my hand in a coffin and a dead girl rose again by my power. 
And how do I know all this? Because I had a friend in a tomb, and I walked up to the tomb, and I said, Lazarus, come forth, and he came. The jubilee year is here. There's a new day, and I've come to bring it. So Jesus comes, and marvelous of all things, and I wish we had time to go into this more, Jesus, in his very redemptive, atoning work, identifies himself with the poor. Amazing. Why does Luke emphasize the birth of Jesus in a manger? Now that's not given to us just to form the first part of a catechism question. You know, wherein consisted the humiliation of Christ? The humiliation of Christ consists of his being born and that in a low condition. Okay, that's neat for catechism, but let's get it down to reality. The uh, part of the humiliation of Jesus, you see, is his desire from birth to death and resurrection to identify with the poor. So Mary and Joseph take uh, at the presentation of Jesus the poorest offering imaginable. Why? Because they didn't have any money. Because they were the poorest of poor, and that was the kind of family Jesus was born into. Jesus never had money. He travels about as an itinerant rabbi, does he? Never settles in, never takes money as the other rabbis of the New Testament did. Why? Because he's poor, and he's come on behalf of the poor. The, uh, so he's dependent, isn't he, upon the charity of his friends to take care of his ministry, upon women who support him. Uh, when they come to collect taxes, Jesus doesn't have any money to pay taxes, does he? So what does he do? He sends Peter down to the river, and he says, Peter, catch a fish, and in the mouth of the fish, you'll have a coin. There'll be a coin. Take that coin and pay our taxes. And that's all he's got. The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. On the last week of his earthly life, he walks to Jerusalem and to, Cal and to Calvary in his death. And even then, he's penniless, isn't he? He stops by the roadside, and according to Old Testament law, he could stop and winnow anything he wanted along the side of the road because he's poor. So he stops at a fig tree because he's hungry and his disciples are hungry. And there's nothing on the fig tree, so he curses the fig tree. It's the curse of the poor man. And he goes to Calvary, and he dies there. He dies there as the poor man, doesn't he? You all know through your passages, through your studies at Easter time, that uh, when Jesus gets is there on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is quoting a passage from the Old Testament, isn't he? From Psalm 22. Sometime take a minute and read through that psalm. That psalm is the psalm of the poor man. Uh, it is a psalm of a poor man, afflicted and broken and desolate, who in his poverty and his weakness and his frailty, oppressed, dogs yapping at him, his enemies making jokes about him, calls out to God to be his savior. Uh, and Jesus now takes that psalm and makes it his own. It becomes the song of salvation. It becomes the song of God's redemption. The song of the poor man, the song of Jesus. And so he is buried. They strip him from his clothes like any other poor man. Uh, nailed there on the cross between two other thieves. The, uh, he's a poor man leftovers from the world. And uh, when he dies, there's not even a place where they can bury him. So then comes the final, uh, uh, the final irony in the, in the earthly life of our Lord. They have to borrow a grave from where? From a rich man to bury him. And three days later, he breaks the bonds of death.
or for our sakes, so that we through his poverty might be made rich. And that's the answer for the world's poor. The answer is Jesus. And that's also the calling, I think, that we have as Christians to follow Jesus, uh, to follow Jesus into the world's dark corners, uh, into the poverty and the weakness and the frailty, all in the name of Jesus, and call the poor to come to him. Now, that's a tough calling. It may require the kinds of sacrifices that are going to be awfully hard to make. Rich young rulers were required to make them, and they weren't quite willing to do it, were they? Uh, the kingdom of God makes very radical demands on us when it comes to money and lifestyle and where we should live and how we should live. Uh, suppose uh, you leave the place here and you go down to L.A. and it's your wife's anniversary, your anniversary, and you want to get something really nice for your wife. You're walking down the street, you see this lovely jewelry store, and uh, in the window of this jewelry store, you see this, the, you know, it's all velvet, you know, all those kinds of things. And uh, there, right in the center of the jewelry store window, is this beautiful pearl. You know, it's not a whole string, it's just one. I can afford this. So, you know, you just step inside and say, Sir, could you, excuse me, could you tell me how much that pearl is in the window? I'm just kind of curious. I'd really like to get that pearl. How much is it? And the seller says, Well, it's uh, very expensive. Uh, how much, you ask at this stage? Well, it's a very large amount. Uh, do you think I can buy it? Oh, of course. Everyone can buy it. Now you're getting a little puzzled. Uh, excuse me, didn't you tell me this was very expensive? That's right. And now you're telling me, though, I can buy it. That's right. I see. Well, how much is it? Everything you have, says the seller. Oh, uh, you know, it's been a great week. You're feeling a little high. All right, I'll buy it. The, uh, my wife will hate me for it, but I'll buy it. Well, says the seller, what have you got? Okay, well, let's see now. I have, uh, have $10,000 in the bank, and I have that small farm uh, up in the Bay Area. Good. $10,000 in the bank and the small farm in the Bay Area. I'll just write that down. The seller jots it down his little pad here. He's pulled out of his pocket. That's all. Well, what else? Well, I mean, that's all. That's all I have. Nothing more. Well, I mean, I have a few dollars here in my pocket. Uh, how much? Well, let's see. And you pull out the wallet and the money and the change. And I have $36.45 and three certs. <laughs> okay. You know, that's fine. Even the three certs he jots down. Strange guy. Uh, okay, that's fine. What else have you got? Well, I mean, nothing. I mean, I mean, that's all. Where do you live? Well, I mean, I live in my house. Yes, I, I have a house uh, in La Mirada. A house in La Mirada, the house and two, and he writes that down. He says, you mean I have to live in my camper? <laughs> ah, and he writes that down. He, uh, what else have you got? I'll have to sleep in my car. You know, and he's jotting down, you know, everything's going on the list. And you're getting kind of desperate, and you're saying, I mean, good gravy, you've got everything now. You've got... Uh, well, wait on my wife. <gasps> and, he, and he pulls out the pad, you know, and he's scratching away furiously. And, uh, and at this moment, you're getting kind of desperate, you know, and you're saying, look, you've got everything now. You've got my money, you've got my house, you've got my camper, you've got my car, you've even got my wife. Uh, I'm all alone. There's nothing left but me. And then there's this long pause, and the fellow takes out the pad, <laughs> and he writes one more thing. You yourself too, he says. Everything. Everything is mine. Your wife, 
your children, your house, your money, your cars, and you too. And you can't buy the pearl of great price unless you are willing to pay that price. Because the kingdom of heaven is like a man who for joy sells everything that he has to buy the pearl of great price. Heavy demands. You willing to pay it? Heavy obligations. The world is waiting. The poor of the world. The greatest burden I guess I continue to have is to see the world come to Jesus Christ. And I want to see missionaries of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church go and tell them. And uh, three-fourths of the world's poor are out there. And we're here. And there's something wrong. I was hungry, and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. Thank you. I was imprisoned, and you crept quietly into the chapel in the cellar and prayed for my release. I was naked, and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your help. I was homeless, and you preached to me of the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seemed so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry and lonely and cold. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be your people. In simplicity of faith, we commit ourselves to you again. And we know that this commitment involves things. Not only our own, our own decision, it involves our wives, our husbands, our children, our houses, our cars, our dollars, ourselves. But in faith, we commit them to you. And in faith, Lord, we ask you, help us rearrange our lives. Help us take a look again at our lifestyles. What can we give up for the sake of the kingdom of God? Help us to look again at the great challenge of a world without Jesus Christ. Can I give up my sons and daughters for the sake of the kingdom of God? Can I give up myself to go share the gospel in Uganda, in Kenya, in Japan, uh, in India? Father, can I serve you with all that I have and all that I am? These are our questions. Lord, help us to ask them and seek answers for them, not out of guilt, not, Lord, out of great burdens and feeling so uh, overpowered by the uh, might and the strength of poverty and illness in the world, but, Lord, out of joy, out of joy for all that we have because of Jesus. In joy, uh, Lord, we're willing to go into the cities of the earth. In, uh, out of joy, Father, for you, we're willing to give up what we have to gain what we can never lose. Make us fools for the sake of Jesus. Uh, make us penniless for the sake of the riches of the kingdom. And, O oh Lord, make us faithful servants of Jesus. Thank you for this time in his name. Amen. Mm -hmm.